Ahead is the full recording of a sermon and worship service at New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church in East Toledo, Ohio. We hope that you've chosen to listen to it because you believe that the Lord may speak to you through the sermon, through the message, and you want to have fellowship with God's people in this uh, technology-based way. We hope that as you listen, you will grow to new heights in Jesus. Thank you and God bless. Accomplish what concerns me today. He is able, more than able, to handle anything that comes my way. He is able, more than able, to do much more than Let me set me, my sons of strength.
So when I was a young preacher, uh, which means I was a very reluctant preacher also, because when the Lord first called me to preach, I said no, um, and no for a while, until I finally said yes, and then for a couple of years after that, it would take me about 30 hours to prepare a sermon, which I would preach about 45 minutes, and it was a bit exhausting tell you the truth, and yet I felt refreshed because I was doing what God wanted me to do, and there was a certain kind of text, a certain kind of sermon, and, and my process generally is I ask the Lord to point me to the scripture, and then once I find the scripture, I break down what the scripture means, and then I try to bring out of that to you what it is that I have seen in there that the Lord has been saying to me out of that scripture. And then I try to summarize that so you have some things to take home. And that has always been my process. And then I have always been deeply affected by every, every time I do that. Always. Without fail. But in those early days, I would occasionally run into a text which had one of two problems that were very challenging for me. And then I would spend a lot of time, more than normal, figuring out why I was there and trying to make things right and consulting God, praying, and letting God lead me. And the two problems are this. The first problem is when the text seems to be affirming something simple that I already believe. You think, well, that shouldn't be a problem, right? You read the Bible, and the Bible should tell you the things that you've already learned from the Bible, and it should all connect, and whatever. The problem is, sometimes we read Scripture, and when we read it, we want it to say what we already think is true, <laughs> And so then that's a really easy pitfall or trap to fall into. It sounds something like this. I read the verse and I go, yeah, I know that. But so-and-so doesn't. They don't do this right. They don't do that right. I can tell them about that so they can do it right. Or, yeah, I already know that. So I'm doing that okay already. So I don't really have to do anything. This scripture doesn't tell me anything that I have to do. And I'm here to tell you that every scripture tells us something that we have to do. So it's really easy to fall into a trap when the first thing you see about a scripture is it seems to be confirming or affirming something that you already believe is true. The second trap that I would fall into, or the second problem that I would have, and I would have to try to avoid falling into the trap, is when I read the scripture and it seems to be asking more questions than it is giving answers. And so when you're reading the text and you look at that and you go, well, I wonder about that, or that seems to be asking this question, and it never seems to answer the question. And so that's a problem because Scripture is really more about answering the questions that, that we have to live and that we need and knowing what to do and like that than it is about asking us questions because, frankly, we don't know anything. God knows everything, and we know next to nothing compared to what God knows, at least uh, compared to him. Anyway, we may know some things. You may have been around a while. You may have read some things. You may have believed some things. But when you read the text, that seems to be asking you questions rather than telling you something, or rather than pointing you in the direction that you need to go, that's not really what Scripture is about. Scripture is not specifically about us asking us questions. You understand? And so both of those things lead me to really question the text and really look at it deeply and ask God a lot of questions. And this text that we're about to read today does both of those things. Okay? And so that put me in a spot this last week. And I worked a lot of hours yesterday, and I worked a lot. I worked uh, some extra on Friday, and uh, uh, I was pretty faithful to my Sabbath on Thursday. But then I spent hours on this text, and and I'm going to just use this word, struggling with it a little bit, on Wednesday, 
And then I had started on Tuesday, and I had read it on Monday. And so all week long, I've been put and, and stuck, if you will, or not stuck, but struggling to make sure that the simple things that it's affirming are not just things that I just want to be true, and also making sure that the questions that it's asking are questions that I should be asking, not questions that are being asked of me and my own answers are being manufactured to answer. Does that make sense? So as you read this text, don't be surprised that two things are going to happen. First thing's going to happen, you're going to go, oh yeah, I already knew that. But make sure when you say, oh yeah, I already knew that, that you're, you actually examine yourself enough, let the scripture challenge you, let God speak to your heart, and make sure that you actually are living out that thing that you say, yeah, I already knew that. And then also, as the questions arise, I'm going to give you some of the answers to the questions that I think the Lord led me to, but I'm not going to be able to give them all to you. So that leads to, us to two action steps. The first one is, when you get that question, and it seems to be a question of you, realize it's really a question for God to answer, not a question for you to answer. So then you take the question to God and let him answer it, okay? And let him be the one who sets the, the direction. And then secondly, it leads us to this. When you, when you encounter those questions, a couple of the answers I'm going to give you are offensive in nature. The gospel is often offensive in nature, so don't tune me out immediately when I say what I've got to say about some of those questions that we're going to, to run into in there. But realize that you could be being offended because you have something to learn or something to grow. You also could be being offended because I'm wrong, and that's okay. If you determine I'm wrong, that's okay. I'm a human being, right? I could be wrong, but I'm going to give you, as best I can from Scripture, the answer to at least one of those questions that's a really significant question in this text, um, and it's a little bit offensive. And so if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but then I would challenge you to come up with either a better answer out of Scripture or to let God answer the question. Or both, right? Okay, so I had to say that and get that out of the way, but that was all free, that wasn't the sermon, but I just wanted you to be aware of kind of where we're heading, okay? And now, we have been studying through the book of Joshua. We learned that Joshua's name was not actually Joshua, it was Joshua, it was Hosea, son of Nun, and he came to Moses and became a servant of Moses, and Moses renamed him Joshua, okay? And when Joshua means Yahweh saves, or, and I learned this this last week that I didn't know previously, you could take it like a command, as in Yahweh saved me, right? So it could be either way in the Hebrew. But either way, it means Yahweh saves or Yahweh saved me. And when Moses gave him that, I submit to you that he was being somewhat prophetic. And the life of Joshua teaches us how God saves people. If you took the word Joshua, you took it through the Greek and brought it into the English, you would get the word Jesus. Clearly, Joshua is not Jesus, but he is a man who is trying to live out the fact that he knows that Yahweh saves. And that's what Moses wanted him to do. And so we're studying his life to a degree, and we're going to get into some texts later, which really dig into the life of Israel and so on. And we're learning things about how God saves. That's what Joshua's been all about. Last week, we saw a woman who was a harlot. And to the Jews, she would have been a useless woman. And we saw her essentially vying or maneuvering to get saved, even though she was not Jewish, not an Israelite, did not come out of Egypt, was living a life of sin, a life that they would have nothing to do with, right? But they came into her house, the two spies came into her house, and she chose the winning side. She navigated through those steps that we talked about last week, which were she talked to the enemy, she invited in the enemy, and she associated secretly with the enemy, and then covered up her association with the enemy. 
And then she even lied to protect the enemy. But realized that in this case, the enemy was God's people and God. So it was a right choice to do those things. And out of that, she was justified. And we read how the book in the book of James, it says that she was justified by faith, by works. She believed in God, and then works out of that faith was what justified her. Okay, So that brings us up to the present day. Now we tend to say amen, or hoot, or hollow, so take a breath and let it out with a noise as we go to Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Amen. This is God's word. For those of you who didn't get all that excited, I would suggest you do it now, okay? Because this is God's stuff here, and I, and I already kind of gave you enough to make you go, ooh, this should be interesting. All right, here we go. Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. I'm sorry. I said 8, but it's not 8. See? Just a human up here right now. Find my spot. It's on the screen, right? It is 8. We're going to read from 8. Okay. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us as that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Okay, now before we go any further, I want you to understand she is giving not only her mindset, she knows her people. Okay? Now she's not the king, she's not a prince, she's not an ambassador. That's not why. She knows her people because she's grassroots level. I was listening to a song uh, this week that I hadn't heard in quite a while as a country song about being raised in the boondocks. And the song basically says, I was raised in the boondocks, and it talks about the kind of person that's raised in the boondocks. Because whoever you're raised with, whoever you live with, whoever you live amongst, that's the people you know. Okay? And so some of us are redneck hillbillies from the far south, and some of us are urbanites who've struggled our whole life, and that's who, that might be the cut of the cloth that we come from, and that's who we can navigate with and know personality-wise or whatever. She knew her people. She was down to earth and knew the people around her, and she had seen these truths. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. And so she was saying that the people around her, now this is the people of Jericho, which is the... <coughs> pinnacle point that needs to be taken to take the promised land. You don't take the promised land. You don't take the wealthy parts of the promised land anyway without dealing with Jericho first. It's a big city with a big wall, right? But she knows that the people are melting away before God's people. The people have come to realize that God has done this. And notice in verse 10, there's a four, and that four is a because. And it says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. So and there's a comma there, and she goes on to other things that they've heard, but we've got to stop here for a second, because they've heard how God dried up the Red Sea before them when they came out of Egypt. How long ago was that that, that happened? When well, we're reading this story, how long ago was it? Yeah, a generation, over 40 years, right? So she is quoting as the reasoning why the people in the promised land are melting before the people of the Lord. One of the reasons is what God did at the Red Sea. Now, she's not quoting what God did to Pharaoh at the Red Sea. We know that God used the, the collapsing of the Red Sea to destroy Pharaoh and all of his chariots. But she's not quoting that. She says, we saw how God worked on your behalf as God's people. You follow? So we saw God is with you. We know that because we know how we parted the Red Sea when you came out of Israel or when you came out of Egypt follow? So she quotes what God did for them, and she is saying, we know that God is with you, and because of that, that's why the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. But then she says, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, 
whom you utterly destroyed. And there's two things to see there. And the first thing is, these are more recent events. They, have utter, they were utterly destroying the people that stood against them. And these people were pretty strong people. They were strong armies and strong kings and strong leaders, and they were conquerors. And the people of Jericho, after the episode at the Red Sea, later the people of Jericho heard the story of how the Amorites were wiped out. But notice then, the other thing is that phrase, utterly destroyed. Now this is a Hebrew military term. It means you destroyed them so well, you didn't even take the spoils of battle. That's significant. So the Israelites did not need the blessings that they could get in battle, in war, because God was taking care of them. That's the formula. God is with you and taking care of you. You can say it this way. He's taking care of you so much that when you were faced by a sea, he parted it. When you were faced by an army, you destroyed it easily, and you didn't even need the blessings that came from destroying the army. Because that's a military Hebrew phrase there, utterly destroyed. You didn't even have to capitalize on or be blessed by what you took from them in battle because... Back up to the beginning of the verse, God, we know, is with you. Verse 11. And when we heard it, so when they heard of that, our, healths, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Now this is interesting because what she's essentially quoting is a verse from when Moses was talking to them back in Deuteronomy. He's telling them what the people in the land, how the people in the land were going to respond when they came into the land. Don't worry, they're going to be terrified of you. Don't worry, they're not going to want to stand before you. And now she is saying, I mean, she's a harlot. She's not a prophet. She's a grassroots Jericho woman who knows the populace and knows what they're up to and knows what's going on. And she's probably seen the governors too, but she's seen all the people of her society and they're all ready to essentially surrender. Many of them are fleeing already. And we know that, that lots and lots of women and children especially, but lots of men uh, fled the approach before they even came. It says, when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Man, I wish that was a statement of faith that anybody might make. The fact is that there are people who live today who believe there is no God. They believe that God is not doing anything. They believe that God is not active in life anymore, that he just started the world going, etc. But she is making a statement, though she has not theoretically, personally ever known God, as we might say, we know God is God in heaven above and on earth because we know him. She has never known God, but she makes that statement. But she makes that statement. Look at what she said. she said. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, because this is why people's hearts melted and no courage <laughs> remained in them. Because the Lord their God, he is God in heaven above and on earth. She's not making a statement about what she knows to be true. She's making a statement about what the people generally have accepted to be true. Now, God's plan was for the Israelites to lead the world to God, that they would become his witness. And I submit to you that in this moment, with God at the fore, essentially, the people of Jericho and the surrounding lands recognize that the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, is God, that he is God, God in heaven and God below. He is the only God with this kind of power. He is the only God who ever parted a sea. He is the only God who ever stood with his armies and made one man equal 20 
Okay? Now, it's not that they didn't used to think, that they don't even still worship these other gods. They're not trying to pay tribute to these other gods in hopes that they will, they will stand up. But now we come face to face with God, and in coming face to face with God, we realize that this God is God. And that was the experience that I had when I got saved. And I heard the gospel, and I realized, you know what, if I don't accept this, and, and for me it was the kind of the third strike, if you will, it was the third time that I actually gave my life over to the Lord, and the main motivation was this. I said, this God actually is God, and if I turn him away again, he may not come knocking again. And I was terrified, and my heart melted within me. I recognize that the God of heaven is God, and he alone is God. Now, it's not that people don't elevate other things and try to make them God. It's not that people don't tarry with other enemies, as we talked about last week. And even she had done that, and the other Jericho citizens had done that, and the lands around them were doing that. And some of them were out there, probably right now, in the fields across the countryside, burning their babies in the fire, hoping that Molech would step up, step up and defeat God, even though they knew who God was. And they knew that their gods were false and evil. And she was stating the state of the nation, which said they were ready, if you will, to fall before Israel. This is everything that these spies needed. It's everything that they came to hear. And as a spokesperson for her people, she says, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Out of the mouths of babes. The youngest in the faith come the most bold of declarations. Verse 12. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord. In other words, according to what I have said to you, because I know this to be true, because my people knows this to be true, and because I know you're going to take the land because God is with you and he is the only God, because all of that is true, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, because I have been good to you, and if you will, I have saved you from your enemies, or at least saved you from trouble, not that God couldn't save you, but I have been his agent to save you that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Notice no husbands and no children are mentioned. With all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And so she pleads with her family. And I think it's interesting because the babe in faith that doesn't want to tell their loved ones or their family and friends about what they have found out about the potential for safety, the babe in faith that does not immediately want to deliver that truth to anyone who will listen that they care about, there's a nagging question as to how that could possibly be true. If he or she had betrayed her entire family and said, save me, I'll hide somewhere and I want to live, and I'm not worried about my dad or my mom or anybody else, if she had done that, then we would know by her demonstrated character that she is not walking with God, knowing God. God is a God of love. God is a God of compassion, even though he's on the verge of destroying a race that would resist him and has resisted him for over 400 years, resisted the knowledge of him that was written in their hearts and instead pursued false gods and, and all kinds of false worship. Even though he's on the verge of destroying them, she knows he is a God of compassion and she appeals to the spies. Because I have helped you now, will you help me? You make sure that my entire household is saved, not just me. Now, it's reasonable to expect that she would have received back some favor. That's completely reasonable. She's asking for her entire household. Verse 15 says, Then she let them down by a rope 
through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. For a long time, this, this verse was questioned, but then now in the ruins of Jericho, they have found the ruins of houses in the wall, on the wall, and with the wall. Verse 16. And she said to them, Go to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you, and hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. So those that went out to look on the way back to the Jordan, she says, here's how you dodge them. Go hide out in the hill country. And then when they come back to the city, you'll have an easy path to go back to your people. So she gives them good counsel even. Verse 17, And the men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. So the window in the wall that faces the outside, so the army can see it, she's to tie a cord of scarlet, a red thread or red cord, so that they know which house to spare. And that sounds pretty good. That's a strategy. But they're not done. And she says, And gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. So all the people that she asked to have saved. She said, Gather them to yourself. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. So in other words, they said, put the scarlet cord there and then gather all the people that you want saved into the house. And if they're in the house when we come, then we promise you that we will not harm them, and if so, then we will be judgeable for their death or any harm that comes to them. But if they're not in the house when we come, then their harm will be on her head? No, on their head, right? It's their own fault. If they're not in the house when the army comes, it's their own fault. <coughs> and so there's some obvious connections there to where you need to be once you've become a child in faith and notice that she would go to them and she would say well the army's coming and they've said they will protect my house so you'll be in my house and if you're in my house when they come you'll be safe and whether or not they accept her testimony now becomes the hinge point as to whether or not they will be saved you follow there's some interesting things there isn't there a heavy implication about the delivery. Now, if she doesn't go and tell them, they're not going to be saved. And if she goes and tells them, and they believe her, and they go in the house, then they'll be saved, right? And if they don't, whose fault will it be? Because they didn't go in the house, right? That's interesting. It doesn't say, if you don't go and tell them. But she does say, they do tell her to go and tell them and bring them into the house if she is able. So, but if she is not able, which presumably would be because they don't want to come, then their destruction will be on their own head. You follow? Okay. It's an interesting pattern there that they have given her. We're almost done with the text. Verse back to 19. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, notice there is another stipulation. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free 
from the oath which you have made us swear. This verse was hard for me. This was one of the most challenging ones. It's where one of the most challenging spots comes in. Because she has the news that will save her family. She is to go and tell the news and bring her family and friends and whoever into the house so that they can be saved. But if she takes that same news and goes out and shares it with another family, you follow? The deal is off. And that's a problem for me. Because... The pattern that I've been following in my mind here is a pattern of evangelism. It's a pattern of the good news. There is a way to be saved, right? And the way to be saved ought to be delivered to anyone. She might know of somebody down the street, a cousin, a good friend from school or whatever, right? And she ought to go and share them. And the, and the truth of this ought to go, she ought to be able to bring them into her house too. Or they ought to be able to put a scarlet cord in their window and be saved. That's what I'm thinking when I read that verse. That only those she chooses, and now who she chooses is restrained. She can only share that with her family and her father's household. And that leads us to one of those nagging questions. A little further, I think we're in the last verse. Go back to 20 for a second. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. She agrees. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I submit to you that if someone else in the city saw the scarlet cord tied in the window and thought, I wonder, and put a scarlet cord in their own window so that they might be like her, so that they might have whatever protection it afforded her. If they were superstitious and they said, I run to, I'm going to put a scarlet cord in my window too, just in case that has something to do with something that's important. And they had done that, she'd have been in trouble. She'd had a problem. Because the Israelites would have begun to assume, these spies would have begun to assume that she had told someone, right? You follow? She could have had a problem here if others began to act like they were the people who had received the promise, even not knowing the promise. And if they had just said, well, that looks good somehow or other, and they did that. What if someone had just fashion said? But the window doesn't face the city. The window faces the army of the Lord, where they're encamped across the Jordan. But the spies are going to be coming back. They're the the counter-espionage troop that went looking for the men. Somebody might have seen. The story goes, no one sees. No one begins to act like Rahab and put a red cord in their window. And no one else is saved. Alright, so we've read the text. And now comes the difficulty, if you will. Rahab is saved from the advancing army of the Lord and what the destruction that the Lord is going to be bringing. She is saved out of the people who do not know God. She is saved out of her previous behavior. And we, we actually know that she is saved to the point that she eventually marries a Jewish man and becomes an ancestor to Jesus. So she's saved. She's not only saved from the advancing army, but she's brought somehow into the promise 
that was reserved for God's people, reserved for Moses, would be eventually reserved for David, which is delivered through Jesus. She becomes an ancestor to Jesus, and we know in the New Testament that she is justified by her faith and the works that arise out of her faith. She is saved. And we know it seems like many, if not all, of her family come into her house and they are saved. Her act of faith, if you were her steps of faith are, she believes, she hangs a cord, and she tells her family and her father's household about the salvation that has been arranged for them. This, after much study, led me to the question to ask this, when do people actually become babes in faith or babes in Christ? Now, why do I ask that question? I ask that question because if we become babes in faith by some mystical words, the things that we say, as some would have you to believe. You know, John 3.16 simply says, if you believe, you will not perish. Believe what? Romans 10.9 and 10 says, you believe in your heart that Jesus is and that he raised him from the dead, specifically. And some will say, that's the verse that tells us how we get to be saved. But believe in him as Savior and Lord, he goes on to say in 10. And so the Lord is the one who tells you what to do. And so then we want to say, well, now you need to begin to do the things that God has told you to do. So I believe that he has saved me, so I need to begin to do the things that God has told me to do. We call that steps of faith. What are the steps of faith? Is it the profession? And the shorter epistles in the back of the Bible you can read that says that no one professes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a lie. So is it just the verbalizing of the words that causes the person to be saved? And this is the struggle when the, the jailer comes rushing in and he's going to kill himself and the apostles, the disciples, the disciples say to him that we're under arrest and they've now been free. They say, no, no, don't do that. Come and believe and repent. Be baptized, and your whole household will be saved. So, is baptism included? And there's a large denomination in the United States that you cannot be saved unless you've been baptized, and it has to be part of your salvation. And they base it entirely on that verse, ignoring those verses that say that it's about your profession of faith, or those verses about that say that it's simply about believing. And they rule out the story of the thief on the cross who believed and he said, surely you will be with me in paradise today, even though he had never been baptized. And they say, well, that's because he was being crucified. And when Jesus was talking to the disciples, he said, can you be baptized with the baptism I was baptized with? And he's referring to the cross. So it's like this guy was baptized on the cross. But that's not the baptism that we know. It's not the biblical baptism that it teaches. So the bottom line of the question is this. When do people get saved? When are they babes in faith? When does their journey in faith begin? Hebrews 11 says that no one is blessed of the Lord, saved, the phrase, the paraphrase there, unless they believe in God and believe that he is a rewarder of him who seeks them. And so is it just believing in God and seeking after God? As many have done, there's tons of religions where people are seeking after God. Is it that moment in time? We read the story, I read it years ago in a Southern Baptist newsletter, and it's been propagated across the world about the woman who was fleeing the tsunami and had a choice of fleeing to the, the mosque as a Muslim, and she was an active Muslim, or to flee, flee to the Christian church building. And she cried out to the Christian God because she knew Allah does not intervene, and she thought maybe just a chance that the Christian God would intervene on her behalf. And she cried to God, please save me, God of the Christians, 
please save me, and she felt an impression, a push to, draw, to run to the Christian church building, which was actually on lower ground than the mosque, but when the tsunami hit, tsunami hit, the Christian church building did not flood, and she survived, and then traveled the world afterwards telling people that the Christian God had saved her when she cried out to him. She didn't know Jesus. She didn't know the crucifixion. She was raised believing that Jesus was a prophet like Muhammad. So it is when you cry, is it when you just trust in complete faith and cry? Abraham didn't know Jesus, so he said, I trust in whatever way you make God, and can God then substitute Jesus? But then Paul in Acts 17 says, now that Jesus has come, and I'm paraphrasing again, that Jesus has come and died, God no longer scoffs at those times of ignorance. He expects you to be obedient. He expects you to recognize the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the, the waters are further muddied or further simplified, depending on your point of view. So if you real quick go, well, no, I know for a fact this is what happens. It's when a person believes. That's it. Then I still could ask you when they believe what exactly. If they can't verbalize what they've believed, is that good enough? And it's a struggle because we know by grace are we saved. Through faith, unmerited favor of God, he gives it. So as soon as we start saying, okay, now I'm saved, but I'm saved when I begin to take steps of faith and do the things that I'm supposed to do now in my newfound faith, then that makes it about faith and works, which is what James was arguing for, while Paul was arguing for it to be only grace. And so the church has struggled with this concept. I'm not new. We've had 2,000 years of struggling with this concept. And it comes down to the answer that Jesus essentially gives us in, I want to say, three texts. And they're somewhat troubling. The first is in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. We don't even have to read the whole parable. This is actually the explanation where Jesus is explaining it. Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. He's explaining it to the disciples a little after he has told it, and people were struggling with it. And I submit to you that people were struggling with it because of this concept that we're talking about today. When are people saved? 13, as well as some other things, I'm sure. He says, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? So kind of accusingly, he says, don't you get the parable of the sower? That's pretty tough stuff because they didn't get the parable of the sower. And he knows that, and that's why he's about to explain it to them. And he says, and how will you understand all the parables? So this one parable, in some way, shape, or form, spoken by Jesus, is the key to unlocking all the parables. And I submit to you, if you don't understand the parables, you probably don't have the Holy Spirit explaining to you what you're reading, which probably has to do with the fact that you're not saved. Understand? So Jesus is saying, if you don't understand this parable, that's part and parcel with being a disciple. Now, I can't say it's part and parcel with being saved, but it follows if you have the Holy Spirit explaining it to you, then you would understand something about it. And then, of course, we have this text where he goes on to explain it. And how will you understand all the parables? And I could paraphrase that to say that the parable of the sower is a parable through which it's a lens of interpretation for the rest of the parables, if you will. Verse 14 says, the sower sows the word. And that's logos. It's the spoken word of God as well as 
the written word, pardon me, that we have before us. And these are the ones who are besi- and these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately comes Satan immediately comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they heard the word, immediately received it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And so before we go any further, we have two classes of people explained. The first one on the side of the road, or that is on the road essentially, and the seed is taken from them before any fruit. If the word of God is taken away from you before any fruit, you are not saved. Right? So just hearing the word of God or understanding the basic concepts of being saved, or I would even say ascending to or accepting certain concepts of what salvation is, is not in itself what saves. But you've got to be in proximity to the word of God because all of these people are there. You follow? The second part then says that there, were, there are people who receive the word of God, but they have no firm root in themselves. They are only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And so it sounds like they receive the word, accept it, and believe the word. John 1.12 says that he who believed in Jesus and received Jesus, to him he gave the right to be called children of God. Right? So now we're talking about salvation coming in at this point. So the first one was, eh, they heard it, they never really got saved. The second one is, they heard it, they got saved, but as soon as persecution, because of the word, in other words, as soon as it gets a little tough, living the way you're supposed to, or living with the Lord, or believing what you read, or allowing the word to correct you, as soon as it gets a little tough, or when the people don't like what you say because you're telling the truth out of the word, which is persecution because of the word, they fall away. And others are the ones of whom seed has sown, was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So here's another set of people that have some kind of growth, but they're stuck amongst the thorns and these other things that they're also concerned about choke out that growth and the word cannot do in them what it really wants to or what it really could and they are not fruitful. We know that the fruit becomes part of the issue because of what he says at the end of it. And those are the ones, the last, are the ones on whom seed was sown on good soil and they hear the word and they accept it and they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And so these are people who are saved and they begin to live out what they are experiencing. They do not have their cares of the world or the things around them or the persecutions of the word choke out the fruit of the word in them and they begin to blossom and they've got fruit coming out all over the place and they're living for Jesus and they're able to do all kinds of things. Now we need to relate this text if you're going to, to a lot of parables, but we definitely need to relate it back to Joshua chapter 2, don't we? Because what happened? Rahab heard the Lagos. She heard what God was doing on behalf of God's people. She heard that this was God's people and that God was with them. She heard it and she believed it. She was in proximity to the truth about God and she believed it. And James tells us she was justified by her faith and her works arising out of her faith. And James is arguing for works that must arrive out of the first steps of faith. 
So she heard it, and she began to produce fruit. So she managed to get past the first stopping point, the first block, if you will. She didn't stumble at the word. She accepted it and began to realize, even though I live amongst the people, that if anybody sees that red cord in the window and they come to question me, or I lied about them spies being here, so now if they find out about that, I'll be punished. I'm still going to live for the Lord. So she pushed past barrier number one. When did she get saved? Probably when she heard the word and responded, according to the parable of the sower. When did she begin to progress as a believer? When she hung the red cord in the window and told her families about family members about the possibility of salvation. Well, that's, if that's the answer, then we have a problem. Because we got an awful lot of Christians out there in the world who are leading people to say that they believed and pray and then telling them, you're good to go. The problem is, we don't need to look at Rahab as our example when comparing to us or the world that we live in. We actually look to be to look at Rahab's family. Because they heard the word from her. Now they probably had heard it too because she did speak on behalf of people and most people had heard. God's people are coming and we're going to be destroyed. The Red Sea was parted. The Amorites couldn't stand. We are nothing compared to them. We're going to get our butts kicked. Everybody knows it. We're all trembling in fear. Our hearts are lacking courage. It's going to be ugly. And so when she came to them, they already had a recognition of the judgment that was upon them as a people. Right? Anybody familiar with the ABCs of salvation? You first got to kind of admit your guilt, realize you got a problem. So the people had that, a lot of them, not necessarily all, but a lot of them, the people she knew had that. And she went to them and said, you know what's coming, don't you? Yeah? Well, guess what? I have a way out. Now we fast forward to 2018 and where we live. And there's a lot of people who don't believe in God at all. And there's a lot of people that don't believe that he's God of heaven and God of earth below. There's a lot of people that don't believe that he's doing anything. And some of those same people have essentially decided this, that whatever they do is fine. That they can do whatever. And they're blowing up the internet and social media and the news channels. And they're in politics or they're in local government or they're in the police or they're in the schools. And they're teaching their own personal philosophies about life instances of this came up in my life this week and I didn't realize what God was saying until I kind of got the sermon wrapped together and I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. We went to the football game, not this past Friday, but the previous Friday to watch Aaron and Arden march in the marching band and there was a woman who came uh, probably in her late teens, early 20s at the most and she had a comfort dog. She had a dog that had been trained to be a companion for her comfort and don't know what the dog actually was the main purpose other than maybe uh, she had medications, or blood sugar, or she's stressed, or, you know, they need for a variety of things. And it was a little puppy, and it was right behind us in the stands, and Ariana wanted to pet the puppy, and the puppy was nice, and so they had a nice little meeting. And then Kyler was over-petting the puppy, and all was going well and everything. And we were watching the football game, and they are playing with the dog, and, and uh, Ariana told the woman behind us that uh, our Alicia's puppy had passed away. It was the only, only dog I ever really liked. That's what she said, which I thought was interesting, because she loves to bring up all dogs. The only dog I really liked is he died. And I don't know if we're going to see him when we get to heaven or not. Which is biblical. That's pretty good for a four-year-old. I don't know if we're going to see that dog when we get to heaven or not. And there will be all forms represented. We know scripture teaches all forms will be represented. So there will be dogs in the new heaven and the new earth. Scripture 
teach us that. But we don't know if that particular dog will be there or not. You can argue that if you want, but scripturally, you don't know for sure that that's true. Okay? This woman says to my daughter, petting her little dog, she says, oh yeah, he'll be there. I know it for a fact. My daughter says, well, how do you know that? And she says, well, I know there's a rainbow bridge. And all the dogs need to go across the rainbow bridge into heaven when they die. And all animals, too. And she said, Ariana said, well, how do you know that? I thought that's a pretty good question for a four-year-old. She said, well, how do you know that? And then the woman said, I know that the same way you know that there is a heaven. That's her own personal philosophy. I don't know where she's getting that stuff from, but it isn't biblical. It isn't even taught by any world religion. She's just making this stuff up as she goes along. And she's teaching my four-year-old in the middle of a football game, at which point I, I just politely said, all right, I'm trying to come over here now. And the good news is, I know my four-year-old is going to get what the Bible says. But I also know that there are a lot of four-year-olds out there in the womb that's going to run into their own Rainbow Bridge lady. And then they're going to put together their own personal philosophies about life. It'd be real nice to know that all the pets that I loved as a child, which there were dozens, by the way, I don't want to get to heaven and have two dozen pets. That sounds like work. You know, even if the extreme comes to an end, I don't even want to have to pet them all every day. All right? Because I've had a lot of pets over the years, and they mostly all died and disappeared. My mother gave a lot of them away, I'm pretty sure. Sorry, Mom. But anyway, the point is, I don't want to get to heaven and have 24 pets. I don't think that would be heaven, as I picture it. Okay? But if that's what God wants me to do for eternity, take care of my pets, then maybe I should have had less pets. The point is, there's a personal philosophy being developed in the world. I was at... Um, out at the game room yesterday and I had a book signing there and I was talking to people about the ministry and church and stuff like that and also playing some games and, and uh, a young girl who was 10 years old came to my booth and most of the books that I sell are Christian themed or, and, or fa- family friendly fantasy fiction that's a lot of that but that's what it is and so we got to talking about God and she said it's interesting that you bring that up because my grandma had a conversation with me about that once she said let me see what did she say Oh, she said, if I wanted to go to Sunday school or church, if anybody ever asked me and I wanted to go, that was completely up to me. And I said, well, have you ever gone? And she said, no, nobody's ever asked me. And then it struck me in the middle of that conversation that her grandmother has some kind of an idea of what faith is but it isn't our kind of an idea. It may even be a little bit like Rahab's originally. But Rahab didn't go to her brothers and her dad and mom and say, hey, you know, if anybody ever asks you to come over to my house when the Israelites come, you could come. If anybody ever asked you, she said, I have a way you can be saved. Where is our confidence, church? Where is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who saved us? Where is our faith in the God of heaven who literally takes up residence in us at the moment that we get saved? Where is the strength that arises out of having a constant companion who teaches you and loves you and convicts you and, by the way, seals you and regenerates you and, by the way, stays with you until the moment as a down payment when Jesus comes? Where is the confidence 
that you have that someone is testifying to you all day long that you are saved because you have faith and steps of faith and you're a child of God now, where is our confidence? We should be saying, you, you've heard that Jesus is coming again one day, right? Yeah, I don't really know if it's true. Well, let me tell you, it's true. And there's going to be a judgment at that time. And we're going to face, you know, judgment for what we've done. How do you think you'll measure up? Oh, I don't think I'll do well. Well, let me tell you, there's a way you can be saved. Where is our confidence? Where is our verbal strength? You say, well, it's not fair. Rahab knew there was an army approaching. Don't you know that judgment day is coming? You say, it's not fair. The people in Rahab's day knew that they had sin. You know what John 14 says about the Holy Spirit? He says that the Holy Spirit will convict some people of their sin, and you just got to go find them, right? That's not what it says. It says the Holy Spirit will convict all men of their sin. You just have to join in the chorus. Not, not the chorus that says you're a sinner, but the chorus that says there's a way you can be saved. Rahab went to her family. Have you gone to all your family at least? The gospel follows these pathways. Now that still leaves us with the real nagging question, doesn't it? What's the real nagging question? Our commission is to go to everybody that we possibly can, isn't it? And hers was limited. Why was hers limited? Because she was for sure going to be saved. And everything that went into her house was sure, for sure going to be saved. But if she went in the streets and began to talk to people, you know what some people would do? Some people who didn't believe in God, some people who didn't believe that, they, that the army of God was coming, or that the army of God was even coming, they just put up a red cord as an insurance policy. And now, back in 2018, this is where we live. You're to share the gospel with anybody who will listen to you. But here's where it gets rough. For those who will faithfully, those who are just going through the motions, those who come into the house, but when money comes knocking, or opportunity comes knocking, or temptation of any kind, they leave the house and go back out in the street, their own death, their own destruction, their own judgment, It'll be on their head. Oh, well, that's actually pretty fair, isn't it? Our job is just to live in the house and lead anybody who will come. But those who won't come, or those, which, by the way, you don't have to deal with them, and those who will come but won't stay, their destruction becomes on their house. Go back to the parable of the sower, right? Maybe they'll even be saved and yet walk away from the Lord in this lifetime and then answer for it after. Is that your job? Is it my job? Matthew 7 says, Judge not lest you be judged. But by the same standard you judge others, that's the standard you'll be judged by. Herein lies our difficulty. We are learning today about babes in faith. And the fact may be that we are babes in faith ourselves. We're learning about babes in faith, and we may be that we're babes in faith ourselves. So take away this. Believe and live out what you believe. Take first steps of faith. Get yourself a metaphorical red cord and hang it in your window because when Jesus comes again, who belongs to him, he will know.
by what you believe and what steps of faith you have taken. However, the problem still lingers. For there are babes of faith, babes in faith who think they are living for the Lord, and yet they will choke other babies, other babes in faith, so that they can live their way, so they can name sin, and they can say, you can't do that anymore because it's a sin. You have to stop. But they haven't dealt with their own sin before the Lord. And that is very dangerous and potentially means they're not saved. Years ago, uh, when I was a teenager, I watched an episode of a show called MASH 4077. I'm coming to my conclusion. If you've seen this show, raise your hand. So if I talk about the series, MASH 4077. Alan Alda. Okay. Less than half this, so let me explain. It's about a MASH unit in Korea. Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. It's about a couple of guys that... There's no Christian doctrine in it. Nobody believes in Christ or whatever. I mean, there's a Catholic priest in camp, you know, whatever. They're drunks. They drink like crazy. But it's uh, meant to be funny. They're dealing with the stress of being in a surgical hospital. And they're great surgeons saving lives left and right. One of the early hospital shows, I guess you might say. There's a particular episode where one of the main characters, Hawkeye, who's a good-spirited individual, even though he's a drinker and a... And a uh, uh, lecherous, if you know what that word means, chasing women all the time, lecherous, right? And through the whole episode, he's dealing with a psychological block. He's depressed, he's struggling, and he can't remember how he got in the situation that he's in. He's got an amnesia, and he can't remember. And throughout the episode, he's remembering a little bit more, a little bit more, and he's remembering being on a bus somewhere with a bunch of people from the mass unit. And there is a woman there who has a baby, and he gets closer and closer, and toward the end, he finally breaks through, and he remembers, and that's how he recovers. And the woman is comforting the baby, because the enemy is nearby, and the mass unit, and the Korean people, and like the supervisors, like that, were on this bus, and they're trying to be really quiet, so the enemy will not notice them, and Hawkeye, that's the character, is in charge, and he yells to him, and he says, silence that baby! She's comforting the baby everything she can. And in response to his command, she covers the baby's mouth and nose and smothers the baby to death. And the enemy goes by and they're not found. And then he goes back and finds that she has smothered the baby to keep the baby quiet so that they would not be found by the enemy. And he breaks, of course. And then he can't remember it at first and then he remembers it. And when I saw that show, it troubled my heart. I thought to myself, I have never faced an enemy like that. I have never had to make an extreme decision like that. I have never been responsible for other people and them being saved, them being saved like he was or like she was. And she sacrificed the life of her child so that the enemy would not find them there in the box. I've never seen anything like that. And then I thought, how horrible that anyone would choke out a baby to protect themselves from the enemy. Better we die. Better she leaves the bus and dies herself than, than choke her, smother her own baby. And yet I thought, what a sacrifice. And I had the same nagging questions. And now we have to relate this story back to Rahab, back to Joshua chapter 2. She let the rest of them die so that she and her family could be saved. Did she do the right thing? 
And according to the Bible, she did. And that's a problem. It's a problem because it affirms what I know in me. And that is that I, I love you. I told you I don't know all that well, and I love you. Because you are here, you desire to know what the Lord wants to say. And that's all I want. And I don't always get it right when I search it out. And sometimes we find it together. And as I struggled with this today, I, I said this. Don't choke out the babes in the faith who have said that they believe and they're trying to walk with the Lord. Instead, come alongside them and rip the thorns away and shelter them and protect them. And when they come and they want to learn about the Lord, that's it. That's their steps of faith. And we have to believe the best we know how. And you don't choke them out. You don't go, they're sloppy and they're messy and I don't want them here. No, we want them with us in every way. And you come alongside them and you help them. But at the same time, also realize that there are those who say that they are saved. But they're not. And those people we present the gospel to. That's what you do. You don't open up your life. You don't expose your heart. You don't let them manipulate you. You don't let them have a relationship with you that's deep and enduring. You share the gospel with them. And then you share the gospel with them again. And again, and when they profess to believe, they encounter the word, and they begin to live out, and they see steps of faith, then you shelter them, and you protect them, and you guide them, and you spend your money, and you spend your time, and you spend your sweat, and you spend your blood. And rather than making them choke out their babes in faith, the people that they have shared with who might be coming, in order that the church stays pretty, or the people stay clean, or the money is safe, or we don't have to work so hard, or whatever, we spend ourselves. And this is what it means when it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the pattern for us. While they are yet sinners, and this, is, this will step on your toes, while they are yet sinners, we die for them, the way Jesus died for us. So you take the gospel. And when they persecute you because they don't want to hear about Jesus, you take the persecution. And you stick with the word. And you live what you know to be true. And you stand firm. And when you die young or younger than you otherwise would have serving Jesus, the scripture says the martyrs come into the kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth first. You just got a promotion. And when you're suffering persecution... You praise God. You say, praise God, I'm able to be persecuted the way Jesus was persecuted. And it's hard. Because we too are babes in faith. And we feel like we just may fall. We feel like we just may not bounce back when we share the gospel and the people are mean or they lie about us or they stop calling someone hits you, someone slashes your tires, someone steals your money, because they know they can get away with it, because they know you believe, and they don't fear the judgment day, and they don't fear God, and if there are those who just will not listen, then you have all permission to distance yourself from them. But there are those who encounter the word, and they listen, and they're seeking, and they and they may be believing, and they are believing, and they are professing, then you spend yourself to shelter them as babies so that you can rise up. 
so that they can rise up. The new deacons who are six months old in their faith, at most. At most. Six months old in their faith in Christ. And who received the Holy Spirit became deacons, servants. They spent themselves so that others could study the word, teach the word, could not be hungry. Where's our courage, church? Where is our great effort? Where is the push that might kill you? Where is the, the firmness that goes so far as the church that we are spending our every last drop of who we are to tell people who are willing to listen? I'm just asking you to tell those who are willing about Jesus. And then to shelter them so they can grow up in the faith. Some of you are here today, and people in this church have sheltered you so you could grow up in your faith, and you've been growing, and now it's your job to shelter others so they can grow up in their faith. That's what the church is all about. Now, she called people into her house. It would be an absolutely poor analogy and a poor interpretation of Scripture to say that she was calling people into her church. That would be wrong. You can't do that, although I'm sure I read two commentaries that tried to do that. You can't do that. However, Jesus said, I have sheep of another fold. It's another pasture. It's another gathering place. And I need to bring them in with you. And all the folds will become one fold. And so this church is a fold. And other churches who love the Lord, they are a fold. And we ought to have relation with other folds. But we're never going to go into partnership with the first church of Satan. We're never going to go in partnership with the Muslim faith. You can share the gospel with them, but then when they say, don't talk to me about that, you shake the dust off your feet and go here and share the gospel. And then when somebody says, yes, I believe and I will try, then you step in to shelter them. And what we tend to do is we say, okay, now just come to church with me. Just come worship with me. And that's good that we do that. But then when they stop coming, instead of going to surround them before they ever stop coming, instead of standing in firm community and chasing away the struggles before they stop coming, they stop coming and we say, oh, see, they fell away. That baby faith is... His seed didn't fall under the soil. We're supposed to be sheltering them we're supposed to be giving our lives to them the way Jesus gave his life for us. And when the church starts doing that, and we're all laying together, and we're all safe, and we're all working together, and we're all sheltering one another, and we're all spending our resources together to reach the world with the gospel, to protect ourselves from persecution, yes, but generally speaking, to be persecuted when it's offered, and to praise the Lord for it accordingly. Then I have a video for you, and I'll show you what the church looks like. You ready? This is the last thing I have
yourself on that website if you want. I watched it probably 20 times. But anyway, and can you do so this way that we all stand together? You know where I'm going? I'm going to heaven. Let's all go together. I'm going to heaven because Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins because of his righteousness. My victories are not my own. They are all his. And you know what that is? That's just funny. Because if I had to do it myself, I'd screw my life up. Thank you for listening to all or a portion of this full-length New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church worship service. New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church is located in East Toledo at 255 Hefner Street, 43605. If you'd like to reach out to the church, our phone number is 419-469-8808. Our website is newheightsfellowshipchurch.org, where you can find lots more information about the church, its connections, and how to give. You may you can mail uh, information to the church at the address 255 Hefner 43605. You can also give to the ministry in some way if you wish by texting G-I-V-E G-I-V-E to 419-419-0095 If you'd simply like more information and updates about the ministry you may text I-N-F-O to that same phone number 419-419-0095 If you'd like to partner with the ministry in some way other than financial you may text P-A-R-T-N-E-R, the word partner, 2419-419-0095.